Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with stage 4 endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today, we welcome Dr. Redwine back to the show to continue talking about endometriosis, treatment, and more. Today is part two, so if you missed part one, make sure to go back and listen as this is the second half of our conversation. I literally just cut it in half because Dr. Redwine graciously shared so much knowledge with us. We know you're probably all well aware of who Dr. Redwine is, but just in case you missed part one or you're new to our podcast, Dr. David Redwine headed the world-renowned and award-winning Oregon Institute of Endometriosis at St. Charles Medical Center in Bend, Oregon. He's treated thousands of people with endometriosis via excision surgery from all across the U.S., Canada, and beyond. His thoughts, research, and experience with endometriosis is on the website endopedia.info, which we will link in the show notes today. So let's give a warm welcome back to Dr. David Redwine. We are so honored and thrilled to have him on the show. And we thank him so much for spending that time with all of us. So I think this is a really good lead-in to talk about treatment of endometriosis. I think the audience is very well-versed on what excision is, what excision is versus ablation. I've talked about that in many episodes. I would love if you would talk a little bit about the recurrence slash persistent rates for endometriosis, because the thing is, depending on the study that you look at, they quote different recurrence slash persistent rates. And, you know, I know that the recurrence slash persistence rate of endometriosis can differ depending on the definition of recurrence that they use in the study, depending on the sample size, the length of the follow-up of the study, and of course, crucial is the experience of the surgeon. So I'd love to ask you, as you know, Dr. Redren, you are an extremely experienced excision surgeon. You are a legend in endometriosis. What is the rate of recurrence slash persistence that you've come across that you think is a reliable rate? There are several ways to look at it. You can look at it in terms of relief of symptoms, you can look at it in terms of need for reoperation, and you can look at it in terms of whether endometriosis is present or not at reoperation. And so, of those three, the third one is the most accurate way to measure any kind of treatment, whether it's medical or surgical, or the response of endometriosis to menopause, or the response of endometriosis to pregnancy. You know, is you do a laparoscopy, you chart where the disease is with pelvic mapping, you remove all the endometriosis, patient either comes back or doesn't come back later, at which time you do another laparoscopy for pain, 
you chart where the endometriosis is or isn't on the pelvic mapping scheme, and then you see what happens, you know, with that subsequent surgery. So looking at this last group, patients who underwent excision, who then return with pain for another excision, what percent of those patients were cured by their first surgery? In other words, how many undergoing a second excision had endometriosis and how much did they have at that second surgery? There are several studies that have looked at that exact question. You know, what is the rate that you find endometriosis at a second surgery after excision sometime before? And uh, so I'll express what was found using a classic medical term uh, that we'll call cure, which means that if somebody had a disease and if they have a treatment, they no longer have the disease. That's the traditional definition of the word cure. And that's what I'm gonna be using, telling you what the answer is to this third group. Among the patients who are reoperated, who had undergone excision, between 56 and 100% had been cured of their endometriosis by that first surgery. And this second surgery was typically months or even years later. Certainly plenty of time for reflux menstruation to seed that pelvis up again, just like dandelion seed in the field. Well, if that's so, and if Samson's theory is where it comes from, and if excision leaves all these raw areas that seem like they just be, you know, perfect for reflux cells, you know, to come down and say, hey, look, we're in a garden, fellas. You know, why is it that between 56 and 100% of the patients did not have endometriosis months or years later? Well, one thing it tells you is that Samson's theory is, a, you know, where endometriosis comes from. Embryology and stem cells being removed completely or not, you know, that goes into the recurrence as we uh, discussed. In patients who have endometriosis at a second surgery after excision, how much endometriosis do they have the second time? You know, the ones who have it, how much do they have the second time versus the first time? Well, as you would expect, they have much less. The ones who had endometriosis had much less endometriosis than they did at their first surgery. So either way you look at it, excision results are a pretty good story when you look at the actual results at surgery. When you step back a little bit and say, okay, well, that's the people that had surgery. Here's all these other people, you know, in, in that group. These people had repeat surgery, but here's all these other people that didn't have repeat surgery. What does this do to, you know, the results in that group? And so when you do what's called life table analysis, which basically just kind of time section by time section, I think I did my analysis by quarters, three month intervals. As you, you know, go quarter by quarter, you're able to see what happens with is endometriosis there in greater amounts, lesser amounts, or the same amounts in those who have it. And the answer is it was there in lesser amounts. So with excision, it's a one-way street. It goes from this amount of endometriosis to none in most patients, or this amount of endometriosis to much less in patients who have the disease. When you look at the entire population, the risk the risk of having new endometriosis diagnosed at five years after the initial surgery is 19%. That's where the 19% comes from. It's not exactly the same as 
you know, looking at reoperated patients and finding that, well, 57 to 100% were cured, but the risk for the whole group at the start by lactable estimate was 19% at five years. So whatever way you cut it, excision is the most effective treatment. When I came out with my studies, people were, I guess, flummoxed, but like a lot of the other stuff that I've written, it's been confirmed, you know, by other researchers around the world. The endometriosis treatment program that Nancy Peterson and I started at St. Charles Medical Center in Bend in 1988 was the first endometriosis treatment center in the world dedicated to all excision all the time. And it's become the model for all successful endometriosis treatment programs in the world today. So the word is getting out about excision. I will say that compared to 30 years ago, more surgeons are doing more excision and doing it better. I've made one error in that quotation that you read earlier, where I said endometriosis surgery is the most difficult in the gynecological repertoire. Endometriosis surgery is the most difficult surgery in the human body, period. You know, that is clear to me. I mean, no other disease acts like a salmon spawning bed where you have to chase it around the body, you know, through multiple organ systems on a regular basis over and over again. I mean, to the point that it can be, you know, physically taxing to the surgeon who does high volume endometriosis surgery. I was always you know, very careful to exercise and eat right and try to take care of myself. So I viewed surgery as an athletic event in a sense. And I, I knew it was going to be like a marathon over a career of many decades. And so I needed to remain in good physical shape so that I could just tolerate doing the surgery. Uh, and that's something that people may not realize for the surgeon, how taxing physically and mentally the surgery can be. These days, everybody has a team. I did all my surgeries alone. I did all my, you know, bowel surgeries, my urological surgeries. I would occasionally have an assistant, but I got to the point where I had my own bowel and urinary surgical privileges. So, which made sense. I mean, I could go, I didn't need a scan. I didn't need an MRI. Whatever the patient had, I'd seen not dozens of times, not hundreds of times, but thousands of times, you know, and uh, I knew from her symptoms and her exam what I could expect. And so I would go in and say, okay, she's got bowel disease, got urinary disease, okay, blah, 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 you know, and I would just handle it all, one-stop shop, you know, and uh, it didn't require any coordination with other offices. Everybody's gone to this multidisciplinary model, which is necessary for endometriosis because it cuts across various surgical disciplines, but you don't need every surgical discipline represented if, you know, one surgeon can do it all. It's clear from my experience that a general gynecologist in a small town can do the most advanced endometriosis surgery imaginable with simple instruments. And so, you know, that's significant not because it happened, but because it could serve as a model for the future. Why do we have this proliferation of surgeons and urologists who want to hijack a case and make something simple, more complex and get paid more money 
than the gynecologists who work through all the cruddy tissue to present, you know, the bowel to the surgeon on a platter. I mean, the gynecologist did all the work, the surgeon gets all the money. So uh, I think that, you know, I would like to see centers where an uber surgeon, you know, is in practice or two uber surgeons rather than the this team approach where it, it dilutes care, cases can get hijacked, a simple resection and reanastomosis of the urethra can be turned into a large diversion procedure with, you know, psoas hitch on the bladder and it makes something simple, complex when you get other people involved. So I think that model is viable, but it's been abandoned. Yeah, I think what you said, it just raises a really important point is that, well, as we've been discussing, gynecological surgery has often been looked down upon by the overarching medical community or deemed not as important. But when you really think about endometriosis, the destruction it can do to the body, the way that it can be in multiple tissues, I mean, you said yourself, one of your surgery was, was 12 hours long. Endometriosis surgery is extraordinarily hard. And I think what you said that, you know, you were a one-man team in Bend, Oregon for many years. And that I think that excision surgeons like yourself, like others who are tackling this awful disease, who are operating in all these difficult parts of the body. I just right now want to really give an applause to you, Dr. Redwine, and to all these excision, not all these, because there actually are not that many, to the few excision surgeons out there who take the interest upon themselves to learn about endometriosis, <clears throat> to learn how to tackle this extraordinarily challenging, insidious, complex disease, and to change the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. So just thank you for your devotion to us and for learning everything that you learned and for being so interested and for keeping such meticulous records. And Well, and that's one thing I want to mention is the infrastructure of my clinical research. I taught myself how to program computers. Uh, I taught myself relational database management because I realized that the concepts I was coming up with, they answered a lot of questions, but they needed some kind of data. They needed some numbers of some type. And so I taught myself a lot of stuff to support the clinical research. And so I did my own computer programming. I did my own videography. I did my own video editing. I did my own medical writing. I did it all because I was in a small town with you know, nobody else. I was in solo practice. So I had Got all that time back from that commute. Exactly. I mean, there you have it. I mean, it's such a beautiful concept, you know, and my son is a engineer for Lockheed Martin in Denver. And um, he used to have to commute 30 or 40 minutes, you know, one way, you know, from home to campus and back. And with COVID, he and a lot of, a lot of other people went to home offices. And now, even though COVID is kind of subsiding, he is allowed to work from home. And so he has completely eliminated his commute, which I knew immediately what that would mean. It would mean time that could be used more usefully for family and friends and whatever, but uh, not sitting in a car. There's a lot of time out there that could be saved. 
I want to keep talking for a minute about excision. So it's my understanding that persistence of endometriosis is far more common than recurrence. So can you explain the difference between the two, persistence and recurrence? And Well, persistent disease is disease that was present at the time of surgery, but which was overlooked for some reason and not excised. And so it remains there because it was there to begin with. Recurrence means that all endometriosis was removed, but not all adjacent stem cells that can form endometriosis were removed. And so uh, you can get recurrent disease, even though all the endometriosis in the area had previously been removed. Now, the interesting thing about recurrent endometriosis is in most cases, it is isolated, it's superficial. I never saw it as deep disease. So there's no question that excision of endometriosis changes whatever the natural history of endometriosis is supposed to be. Beyond just the question of at reoperation, does the patient have endometriosis or not? You know, is the question of does the patient have deep endometriosis or not? You know, because a lot of those patients did have deep endometriosis. So what happens to deep endometriosis after excision? The answer is it basically doesn't recur. Deep disease. There may be some superficial disease from stem cell changes into endometriosis, but deep disease is very uncommon after aggressive excision. Now, as patients get older, you know, their endometriosis can change in visual appearance. And that also includes uh, in some patients they can develop deep disease. And so I would sometimes kind of state that the best time to operate on somebody would be when they're 25 years or older, because by that point in time, most patients have formed all the you know deep endometriosis that they're going to have. And so what you see at surgery is what you get. Whereas if you operate on a teenager, I found that teens were the uh, age group that was most difficult to cure. They had the, the lowest cure rate compared to the other age groups, which makes sense because they, you know, they had subtle disease that maybe even I missed. I found myself towards the end of my career in teenagers removing kind of wider and wider areas because I was considering to myself, well, you know, she's a teenager. I see the disease here. I'm going to take a really wide area to see if I can get whatever stem cells, you know, are present. I didn't have enough data to know if that, you know, did any good or not. But uh, there's a physician in England, Dr. Tran, who just, he decided he would just remove all of the peritoneum of the posterior pelvis in all of his patients with, as you would expect, a low recurrence rate. So it's not my thought alone that, hey, look, the more you remove, the more you can cure other people, you know, I thought that. So, and that's, that's going to be one of the other challenges for the future that may unite genomics with surgery in another way would be if there could be, you know, they've tried all kinds of stains to see if they can identify really early endometriosis, you know, and remove it too, as well as the obvious lesions. Nothing's really been great, but, uh, you know, I wonder if there could be some kind of a genetic stain where, you know, seemingly normal tissue really are tagged stem cells somehow. And if they could be painted with something that would light them up, you could kind of get a better idea about how wide your surgical margin needs to be.
wouldn't tell you how deep you need to go, but there clearly is an area of stem cells around these islands of endometriosis that can lead to superficial local recurrence, but not necessarily always. But there are a, a million interesting paths forward in the future, you know, for endometriosis when you look at it uh, in these ways. When you reoperate on a patient to see if they have endometriosis at a subsequent surgery, how do you really know if the disease is recurrent or persistent? Is it possible to tell in many of the cases or is it? Oh, that's good. That's a good question. It, it usually is possible to tell because when you do excision, there is a layer of fat under the peritoneum. And so when you do excision, that fat is removed. When the peritoneum regenerates, it's very thin and it kind of flows into the contours of the area that you had removed. So in other words, you can see the margin, the healed margin of the area that you excised. And uh, in some patients, I have seen superficial endometriosis smack in the middle, you know, of an area that you, you, you could see I had removed, you know, a margin and uh, there was endometriosis right there in the middle. So that I know was recurrence, whereas persistence would typically be something that, you know, is off over here, hidden behind the sigmoid colon high on the left pelvic side wall. And you just didn't look there enough when you were there the first time, or, you know, there's a spot over there on the anterior abdominal wall that you didn't see and didn't remove. So, and then the whole question of visual identification at surgery comes up because to have the best chance of removal of all disease, you have to have a good eye for identifying all the disease. And so the capability of surgeons to identify endometriosis, you know, is all over the place, really. So some of the meaning of persistence and recurrence gets kind of lost when you look across all of gynecology because not everybody is doing aggressive, complete excision in the first place. So the 19% that you came up with in your life table analysis, I think it was with... That's a five-year risk of new endometriosis being identified surgically in patients who underwent excision. But most patients did not undergo reoperation, and so that's why it's an estimate. Well, I know that other researchers have come up with similar estimates. I believe yours was on 359 patients, and I think Wheelick and Malinick. Oh, a Russell Malinak? Yeah, yeah. They, they also had a life table analysis with some hundreds of patients with a very... Then a laparotomy, then a laparotomy, yes. And they found almost the exact numbers that I found. You know, and the, the fact of the matter is, is that whether it's 19% risk, whether it's 70% cured versus 90% cured, the fact of the matter is, is that 40 years ago, people weren't even talking you know, in terms of cure at all. It was, this is an incurable disease. And so the fact that in 2021, we're even able to talk about the concept of cure, what does it mean? It means many things, but, you know, it's clear that surgery can produce what everybody would agree is surgical cure of endometriosis. In other words, you go in and you don't see any more endometriosis. Yeah, there might be something tiny hidden in an ovary. There might be something tiny hidden in the wall of the bowel that you'll never see, but it may remain there forever. So, um, you know, not all endometriosis is 
programmed genetically to become severe disease. Right, and, and those most tiny... Of it, most of it is not. And those programmed. tiny little seeds of endometriosis tend to be asymptomatic, you said earlier. They can be, particularly they're kind of isolated by themselves, but even what might be called subtle disease can cause pain. So you just have to respect endometriosis of any appearance and consider it to be a potential cause of pain. So you have to take it out. Yeah. I think the rates of recurrence are important to a lot of patients, not the exact rate, like is it 19% or 18.3%, but to just have a general idea, because as you said, I think that for so long, many doctors in the overall medical community are hung up on Samson's theory. Endometriosis is always going to come back. So if it's always going to come back, why do excision? Why operate in the first place? Why not do symptom management? And so I think that for, at least for me, when I hear that the chance of recurrence in the fifth year from your life table is about 19%, that lets me know that excision, in my case, was something that I wanted to invest in. Because as we've said, excision, it can be expensive. It is obviously a emotional undertaking to have surgery, to take, if you're working, take time off of work, to have to recover. There's just so much that goes into surgery. And so, you know, to do all of that and then think like, oh, well, it's just going to come back anyway. It's like, then why bother? So I think- those- Exactly. They go, they go into surgery with a bad attitude. Oh, this ain't going to work. Well, guess what? It won't with that attitude. Yeah, I think that having these- recurrence rates be so low. It's just, it's a really important validating factor that excision surgery works. Of course, as we said, it does recur in some individuals, that number is low, but of course, for the people who it does recur in, that is heartbreaking, that is terrible, but it's good to know that there is hope and that even in people with the endometriosis recurs, typically it's less than before. It's superficial compared to... Yeah. Yeah. And one of the interesting things is, okay, you know, I talked about the cure rate observed in reoperated patients. You know, somebody has excision surgery and then months or years later, they're reoperated for another surgery. Well, some patients have a third operation. You know, I never collected enough data to publish a paper, but what I found was that of the first group of patients looking at reoperation, you could cure, let's say, half. I, I said the cure rate is between 56 and 100%, but just to keep the conversation ultra conservative, let's say that excision will cure half the patients. Okay, then you come into uh, these patients over here who have you know, a second surgery, and that, that's how you know that half of the first group was cured, but then you excise again, how many of that group is cured? Well, that can only be found with a third surgery. And what I found with third surgeries was that I could cure half again with a second surgery. So in other words, with two surgeries, I could cure 75% of patients with endometriosis. Most of them had had most of their disease removed the first time. And when I was removing stuff at a second surgery, it was kind of you know, odds and ends of disease, but judging by third surgeries, you could cure 50% of the first surgery, another 50% of the second surgery. So 75% cure rate 
with two surgeries is what I observed. But again, my actual cure rate for the first surgery is 57%. I just said 50% to be conservative. Well, I think it's important to point out that you're a very, very experienced precision surgeon who mm-hmm. has done thousands of cases. So it also comes back to what we were saying about different rates of recurrences. The skill and the experience level of the surgeon is absolutely vital. Yes. I mean, it goes without saying. You know, surgery is a, it's fascinating, obviously. It's a privilege. You combine so many disciplines at one time, in a sense. Uh, it's very focused, and um, but it's enjoyable. And not all, not all surgeries last for 12 hours and 30 minutes. A typical surgery for me would last 45 minutes to an hour. So my next question is if all endometriosis has the same recurrence rate. Because I've heard some surgeons say that, for example, with abdominal wall endometriosis, the recurrence rate is close to zero. With intestinal endometriosis, more or less like 10%. Earlier, you were saying that deep infiltrating endometriosis tends to have a a low recurrence rate to be deep again. And then we know that endometriomas can have a much higher recurrence rate, even in the hands of an expert. So I'm just wondering... Why would different areas of endometriosis have different rates of recurrence when in the hands of an expert excision surgeon? Well, that's a good question. And of course, I will uh, punt back to it has a genetic answer. And you can only imagine what genes might be involved to translate into why this area behaves the way it does and an area just over here in the same pelvis behaves differently. Uh, And the patient down the street you know, her pelvis is behaving differently than, you know, the backdoor neighbor. And there is so much genetic variability that would explain any observation of endometriosis that, I don't know, it becomes a something that to me at this point seems obvious. I think it's genetic. When we say that endometriosis has a 19% rate of recurrence, it seems that different endometriosis in different areas Right. Occur differently. Right. And that is one of the features of that publication that I did is that it didn't, it examined all comers. It wasn't just patients with endometriomas or just patients without endometriomas. It was all comers. And so, you know, I don't think, I don't recall, you know, kind of partitioning it out in the paper itself. But yeah, the various anatomic locations present their own difficulties with surgery in the first place, which can impact the subsequent recurrence or persistent rates, depending on how complete the surgery was done. So the location differences that we observed could be genetic, or it could be related to the difficulty of surgery, which of course is related to genetics also. So we always get back to genetics. Genetics interacting with the environment you know, explains a lot that goes on. All right, let's talk about Lupron. So Lupron is commonly prescribed for the treatment of endometriosis symptoms, but patients and even doctors are not always fully informed of the side effects that can occur from taking this medication, the potential side effects. So you had access to Lupron's raw data in 2011 when you were an expert medical witness in one of the lawsuits against Lupron. And you were able to look at 
thousands of pages of raw data for Lupron, and then you put together a 300-page report to the FDA called Luprolide, the D is silent, which is a very clever plan words because Luprolide is the drug name of Lupron, and if you take out the D, you get Lupralide, as in not the truth. So can you give us your opinion on Lupron or tell us a little bit about what you came across? In yeah, well... Um the most important thing that I found in reviewing the Lupron, uh, this was the in-house studies. I received the tabulation. I didn't receive the individual patient record sheets, you know, that might have been filled out and mailed in. I got the tabulations, tabulations plus everything forward from those tabulations, discussions, conclusions, you know, and so on. And the most important thing that I found was uh, with the, the first study that I reviewed, they were given a nasal form of Lupron followed by injections, I believe. And what they did is, you know, they treated them for six months and they looked at the pain response and such like that. But the part that I was interested in was where in, I think, eight patients, one year later after stopping the Lupron, and without these patients being on any birth control pills or anything else in the meantime, eight patients, one year after stopping Lupron, 75%, six of those patients, their estrogen levels had not returned to baseline. And in half those patients, four, the estrogen level was too low therapeutically, you know, in terms of my personal therapeutic range that I would use in my patients. And one, of those eight patients had menopausal levels of estrogen. So 75%, one year after stopping Lupron, had not returned to baseline ovarian function. That fact, it's kind of a simple fact, that was not mentioned in the publication that came out at that time in the medical literature. And in fact, why would a drug company want that kind of information in a medical publication that they're writing because that, you know, would poison sales. You know, if doctors were to think that, God, if I give this patient Lupron, there's a 75% chance that her ovaries won't be working as well as they were in a year. And if patients had been told that by informed consent, we're going to give you Lupron. We believe it works, but there's a 75% chance that your ovaries won't work as well a year after you stop it. Who was ever told that? You know, okay, you could say a lot of things. You say, well, eight patients out of however many, many millions, that's not very many. What conclusions can you make? Well, that's true. Eight is a small number, but one conclusion that you can't make is that Lupron is safe for ovarian function. You can't make that conclusion either. You know, if they say, I can't conclude that, you know, Lupron poisons the ovaries because there's only eight patients, they can't conclude that uh, there's evidence that ovarian function is supported by a year. I mean, in fact, just the opposite. Let, let me look at this. I pulled this up. Back in 2018, in the Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology, Gallagher et al., I believe they're from either Harvard or MIT, somewhere back east, they gave questionnaires to patients who had taken Lupron as adolescents for endometriosis. And they had taken Lupron for up to six months, three to six months as adolescents. 
they found that at a questionnaire given four years later, 80% of those patients had side effects and 30 to 40% of the patients considered that they had irreversible side effects that they timed to, you know, the administration of Lupron. Unfortunately, blood estrogen levels were not checked. This was a questionnaire only follow-up type study. But when you piece together 75% chance that your ovaries aren't going to come back to normal by one year after Lupron with this Gallagher study, you know, finding such a high percentage of patients who, you know, had, who related significant permanent symptoms to the timing of Lupron. I mean, it's like, and and many of those symptoms were menopausal in nature. Is this later study simply confirming what the first study said, that women who took Lupron have long-term ovarian damage? Seems to. I mean, that's one possible impression. But again, since estrogen levels were not checked, you know, we don't know. But it's certainly part of a smoking gun. Other things that I found in um, my Lupron review was that there was a difference in how certain data was handled when they were comparing Lupron with, for instance, birth control pills. There were various ways that they could categorize patients who stopped Lupron for some other reason. In other words, they didn't use the same reasons for patients on Lupron and patients on birth control pills, you know, in the same study. And so it seemed to me that that particular measuring system was gained to favor Lupron. I mean, they didn't make the same choices with the birth control pill group categorized their outcome as they made in the Lupron group. And there are a bunch of protocol violations that I found and things didn't make sense. And it doesn't matter though, because all of this is under federal court seal and can't be used. And so everybody knows that, you know, Lupron uh, must be good because everybody's prescribing it, right? All these people couldn't be wrong, could they? You're shaking your head, yes, they could be. Yes, they could be wrong. They are wrong. I'm not a fan of Lupron for many reasons. This is just one. If, if we had estrogen levels showing that these patients had you know, low ovarian function years after Lupron taken as adolescence, then you know, there would be a revolution, I think. I know that when Orlissa came out, you also took a look at the publications of Orlissa and you were pretty active on your Facebook page about Orlissa and the data that came out. So what discoveries did you make about Orlissa? Well, you know, it's a drug company, so you have to be suspicious that they're being deceptive. Everybody knows that drug companies, you know, are deceptive in their studies and in their marketing and they're not making these drugs to make you better, they're making these drugs to make money. And that's important to realize because the love of money is the root of all evil. And you know, if you love money enough, then you'll do all kinds of stuff. Well, the deception with the Oralissa paper was this. Well, first of all, the overall, overall impression of Oralissa is that it's not even as effective for pain as a low-dose birth control pill. And it's not even approved as a birth control so it's not even as effective as low-dose birth control for any reason. I mean, you'd have to take Oralissa plus, you know, another contraceptive. That's actually the recommendation. So anyway, the efficacy is just is not good, which is understandable because it's hormonally based. I don't care if it's a progesterone antagonist or a GnRH antagonist. It's hormonally based. What have we learned from the last 
you know, 61 years of hormonal treatment of endometriosis, we have learned that it does not work. We have learned that all hormonal treatments kind of do the same thing. They make some people feel better, they make a lot of people feel bad, and they make, you know, some people allow to get worse. So the answers are in regarding, you know, a medical therapy, and Oralissa is no better than anything else. The deception with Oralissa was this. They produced in the original study back in 2017 in the New England Journal of Medicine, they reproduced some charts showing the effect of Oralissa at six months for pelvic pain away from the menstrual flow and for dysmenorrhea. They didn't show a chart, a bar chart for dyspareunia. Dyspareunia, painful intercourse, is an extremely common symptom of endometriosis. So they had bar charts for six-month results. They also had a discussion of three-month results in there. And at three months, Oralissa was found to have some statistical significant improvement of sexual intercourse. But by six months, that improvement was gone. Okay, so sexual intercourse pain got a little better at three months, but by six months, it was gone. That's why they didn't put a bar chart for six months along with painful periods and pelvic pain, and they wanted to hide that fact. The problem is the FDA, they presumably got this, and they saw, oh, painful intercourse improved at three months, but that improvement was gone at six months. Therefore, this product doesn't work for painful intercourse. No, the FDA did not do that. They said, oh, this product improves painful intercourse a little bit at three months, but that improvement is gone by six months. So let's approve this product for painful intercourse, even though they had proof that it didn't work. I have no idea how that happened. That seems to be a complete you know, error by the FDA to approve something that was just proven not to work. I mean, and this is a randomized controlled trial. This is a gold standard of medicine. If we don't take evidence-based medicine seriously, stuff like this will continue to happen where, you know, results are padded or hidden or altered, you know, to make them better for presentation to the FDA. But this, this was crazy, you know, slight improvement at three months, but no improvement at six months. No graph for six months because the company knew it didn't work at six months. And yet the FDA approved it. I mean, there is no hope. Yeah, and you can actually see that on the website. So you mentioned AbbVie, that is the maker of Orlissa. And if you go to the website for Orlissa, you can see, I can't remember now if it is a graph or a bar chart, but they have like a fancy display for painful periods. And then I forgot the other one, like, I think abdominal pain or menstrual flow, non-menstrual pain. Yeah. You know, they had taken and and that that article, that article had said, okay, these are our primary endpoints. They demoted painful intercourse, which is a primary endpoint for anybody with endometriosis and any surgeon taking care of them. They demoted that to a secondary endpoint simply because the data was unconvincing. Oh, well, yeah, well, that was a secondary endpoint. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that uh, it doesn't work for uh, painful intercourse because it's a secondary endpoint. Look at these primary endpoints and don't look at that secondary endpoint. And don't look at the fact that the improvement was gone at six months and that the FDA approved it 
on an interim three month value that went away. You know, I mean, I don't know if the FDA is in actual collusion with drug companies or if they're just stupid, but this made no sense to me. But it's deception and it's a drug company and the paper was written by the drug company, you know, not by the doctors involved. Let's write a letter to the FDA and ask them your question. Are you in collusion with the pharmaceuticals or are you just stupid? <laughs> well, so is the end of my questions. This has been a pretty long marathon of an interview. So thank you for spending the time here today with me and with all of the audience to talk about endometriosis and all these different aspects and to share your knowledge and your expertise, which has been amazing and just so exciting. I do, I have a joke earlier at the very beginning, you were like, oh, these scientists say that endometriosis is scared of light. And so when you put light on it all like runs away. So I was thinking, well, maybe that would be a really good quote unquote cure to endometriosis. We just have an operation. You just put like a, some kind of solar powered light, like in us, like a rechargeable light bulb. You just stick it in the abdomen or wherever it is on the lung, the brain, you know. Good, good, Good idea. But here's something easier. You don't need a energy source. You put a, a piece of glass, you know, across the abdomen so that, you know, light can shine in, you know, directly through the glass in the abdominal wall, like a window. You don't need a power source. That's a great idea. I am there. If you want to go back to practicing and put let's, a let's, let's in call, my let's, abdomen, I but let's don't, let's don't call Let's don't call a drug company. Let's call Pella Window. <laughs> they can uh, make something for the abdominal wall to let the light in. Maybe we can get the FDA to approve it. I don't know. <laughs> I've lost hope. Dr. Redwine, thank you so much. Thank you seriously for agreeing to this, for getting together, for sitting here for pretty much three hours now, answering all of the questions. I enjoyed talking with you, Amy, and I hope that gives you everything you need and more. Thank you so much, Dr. Redwine, for being here with us today. We have covered so much in this two-part series, and we just want to thank you for your time and for your exceptional work as an endometriosis excision specialist. We want to thank you for your commitment to us as patients, for your advocacy, for your research, for your ongoing commitment to endometriosis even throughout your retirement. Dr. Redwine, you are truly an endometriosis pioneer, a legend, and a wonderfully caring and also very humorous human being. So thank you so much for everything that you have done to change the lives of people with endometriosis and push the boundaries of scientific knowledge on Endel. So this concludes our interview series with Dr. Redwine, and we thank you all for listening. 